0: This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening.
1: Scripture reading today will be taken from 1 Samuel chapter 28. You can take a moment uh, to grab your Bibles or you can follow the passage on the screen. 1 Samuel chapter 28 verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Ashish said to David, You must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. David said, Then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Ashish replied, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him, and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shuram, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Sarah filled his up. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the name I the one I name. But the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the women asked, Whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? he asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord also will also give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all day and all that night. When the woman came to Saul and saw that he was greatly shaken, she said, Look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my hands and did what you told me to do. Now please listen to your servant and let me give you some food so you may eat and have the strength to go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his men joined the woman in urging him, and he listened to them. He got up from the ground and sat on the couch. The woman had a fattened calf at the house, which she butchered at once. She took some flour, kneaded it, and baked bread without ease. Then she said it before Saul and his men, and they ate. That same night, they got up and left. This is the word of God speak to God. Pastor Andrew uh, will now uh, speak to us God's word.
0: Hey, good morning, everyone. Thanks for making all the trouble to come all the way here today. Let's bow our heads and go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we come solemnly before your word. We pray that you may help us to truly hear from it and to examine ourselves to be convicted of what you've shown us in your word today. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was really young, I loved playing football. Remember once I was playing when I was really young in this field, and in this field were these uh, big ornamental pots, right? You can imagine these big pots with these ornamental uh, plants growing in it. So anyway, my enthusiasm to play football that day, I decided to slide tackle my friend, but all I succeeded to do was actually just ram into one of these ornamental pots. I was a bit dazed, and I got up, and I was really interested in getting back into the game. So I go back to the game, and everybody around me suddenly stopped. And they said, you're, you're bleeding. And I'm like, huh, what do you mean, just a scratch? No, you're really, really bleeding. So I touched my face, and there's like, blood everywhere. I look at my shirt and there's blood everywhere. And I realized that actually I had this really bad cut, which I actually had to go to the doctor get stitches for. So during that time, I was really focused on the trivial, which is getting back to playing the football game. But I missed out on what was really important, which was that I had this huge cut on my head. My dad was telling me about a friend of his who was a golfer. And he had this back pain, so he was really bothered because he couldn't play golf. Couldn't resolve the pain, and in the end he went to see a doctor, and he found out that he had pancreatic cancer. So he's focused on the the really the trivial thing, which was playing golf, but actually what was really serious was his back problem, which actually came from this cancerous growth growing in his pancreas. Now, brothers and sisters, I wonder whether we ever make that mistake where we focus on something which is trivial, but actually is really unimportant in the end, right? Because I was reading this book many years ago about how many of us feel these immediate felt needs, which we feel are really, really important. Maybe for me, it's getting back to the football game. Maybe my dad's, you know, his back bothering him and he can't play golf. But at the end of the day, these immediate felt needs are not as important as our hidden needs, and in fact, these immediate felt needs can actually be really trivial. Today's passage, in a sense, is a corrective, right, of how not to make that mistake, how to not make things more important than they really are, and to set things in their right perspective, and to see where the really important needs are, where we should be focusing on. Now, Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at 1 Samuel, and we've been looking at this really important part of 1 Samuel. We began this section all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, where God had said through the prophet Samuel to King Saul that the kingdom was torn from him. He would no longer be king. In 1 Samuel 16, we saw that God had anointed David as the next king of Israel. But Saul had reacted very negatively to this, he'd opposed God's plan, he had rebelled against God, he tried to murder David over and over again, and last week we saw his anger and opposition to God was so great that he actually killed all the priests of Israel. Now as we come now, 13 chapters later, to 1 Samuel 28, the anger of uh, Saul and his murderous intent towards uh, David had gotten so bad that if you see this map, it actually forced David to move out of the promised land out of Saul's kingdom into the Philistine territory. Okay, so David is actually here now as we come to 1 Samuel 28. He's actually in the Philistine territory. So if you remember the the names Gath and Ashdod and Ziklag, these are all Philistine places, Philistine cities. And so David has been forced over to the Philistine side to find sanctuary and safety from Saul. And he's playing a very dangerous game, right? He's actually on the side of the Philistines, but he's trying his very best not to attack Saul and the Israelites. In fact, if we actually bother to look at the story, and I hope that you can read read of it of your own, he's actually spending his time attacking the Amalekites down in the south rather than attacking the Israelites. Where we find ourselves today is that the Philistines now are threatening to attack Israel up in the north while David is down in the south. You with me so far? So David is down in the south. The Philistines are up in the north. And that's where we find ourselves in today's passage in chapter 28. In those days, it said the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. And in verse 4, the Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp, El Gilboa. Now all these words are meaningless to us, right? So we need to kind of understand it in a typological, in a map way. So Gilboa, if you notice, is up here, and it's kind of like halfway up towards the north of the country. Now, this is a very, very strategic uh, military strategy that the Philistines are trying to do, because what's going to happen is, as they enter an attack into Shunem, into the Mount Gilboa range of, uh, mountain range, if they succeed in occupying this territory, what will happen? Effectively, they will cut off Israel into half, okay? So where we're at right now is a very defining moment in the battle of, between the Philistines and Israel, God's people, right? This is like the defining war, which could define what the course of the whole of the battle will be. It's no different from the defining battle of D-Day between the Allies and Germany, no different from the battle of Stalingrad between Germany and Russia, no difference from the defining battle of Midway between America and the Japanese. And so, the forces are assembled, Philistines up in the south, sorry, in the uh, west, and then uh, Israel is in the east. And when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid and terror-filled his heart. So this is a bad sign, right? It's a bad sign when your king goes and looks at the opposition army, and he's really, really terrified. Because if there's anybody who needs to give a uh, it's kind of like a calm presence, it's like your king. Right? So what made Saul so terrified that terror filled his heart as he looked across and saw the Philistine army? Now if you look at this uh, picture here, this is actually where they went to fight, okay? So this is up here on the top here. It's actually Mount Gilboa. And if you actually looked over there into the distance, this is Shunem. Okay, that's where the Philistine army is. So what did the King Saul see as he looked across from Mount Gilboa, across the valley to the Philistine army? I think most probably, and this is what most historians will say, is that he was afraid because he saw the chariots of the Philistines. Now we already know, earlier on, we've kind of come across this battle before, that the Philistines were traditionally really strong because they had these chariots The chariots were like the tanks of the ancient world, right? And that's why, when we actually look at the geographic location, the Philistines were gathered in this place called Shunem. Okay, so we zoom in a bit. See, Shunem is actually in the valley area, and that's where the tanks and the chariots operate the best, right? I mean, chariots and tanks don't usually go up to the mountains, right? They stay on the level ground. Whereas the Israelites were... uh, Sorry, where um, David was, sorry, Saul was, Mount Gilboa, is actually on the mountain range because that's where all the, the foot soldiers operate the best. And so Saul was really scared because he looked across and he saw these chariots, he saw the superior forces of the Philistines. Well, he's up on the mountains with the foot soldiers of Israel and he's wondering, how can I defeat Philistines, right? Because usually in battle, the people with the better tanks and the better military will always defeat the foot soldiers every time. And that's why, you know, U.S. and Ukraine and you know and Germany, they keep sending tanks, right, in order to defeat Russia. Because tanks usually will defeat foot soldiers. So we see here that Saul is really desperate. He looks across, he sees the superior forces, the Philistines, he sees the chariots. And so in verse 6, he inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or urim or prophets. Now, this is a shocking thing that Saul is doing because we never see Saul doing this at all, right? We've read like from 1 Samuel 12 up to 1 Samuel 28, 16 chapters. But we never see, in a sense, Saul inquiring of the Lord. You can look it up yourself, right? I've looked it up. He never inquires of the Lord, but here he is so scared and he's so desperate and he's so terrified that he actually inquires of the Lord. But what does he hear? Silence. Silence. He did not hear from God by dreams, by Urim, or by prophets. Now this is all entirely his fault, right? God doesn't reply to him because we've already seen that Saul is opposed and rebellious to God's plan. He's been trying to murder God's anointed for like the last 12 chapters. He doesn't hear from Urim, because the Urim is the possession of the priest, right? The priest wear their religious clothes, and on the religious clothes are the Urim and Turim, which is the means by which God communicates to his people, and so he killed all the priests. No more Urim left, except the one Abiathar who's gone over to David's side. And again, God didn't answer him by the prophets. Now, this links back to verse 3, right? Because God didn't answer him by the prophets because primarily in verse 3 it says now Samuel was dead and Samuel was like the preeminent prophet of the day. Now if you think about it, this is chapter 28. We already told back in chapter 25 that Samuel was dead. So why does the author of 1 Samuel bother to repeat what we already knew back in chapter 25 that Samuel was dead? I think this is really important because Samuel died in chapter 25, but in chapter 28 was where his loss was most keenly felt, right? This is where, if any time we needed the prophet Samuel, this was it. Because if you think about it, Samuel has been like this positive influence all through since 1 Samuel chapter 2, right? So remember the narrative of 1 Samuel has lots of ups and downs. So you've got the down period of priest Eli and his sons, the down period of King Saul, but all through this period, Samuel has been alive. He's been like this positive voice of God's presence and guidance to his people. He's like the lighthouse to the good ship Israel, right? All this time. It's almost as if what we see here is like, you know, you can block someone on WhatsApp, right? So it's like God has blocked Saul, right? Okay, like Saul's trying to get through, but he can't get through to God. Now, what should Saul have done here? Well, I guess if you're interested in someone blocks you, you try to find out why they blocked you and what you've done wrong and try to fix it, right? Try to get right with that person, reconcile that person so you will be unblocked. And that's what Saul needed to do, right? He needed to unblock his relationship with God. He needed to repent of trying to kill God's anointed, ask God for mercy, seek to be forgiven. But what does Saul do instead? In verse 7, Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who was a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. Now, this is shocking, right? Because instead of unblocking his communication and relationship with God, he seeks to find another means of of help and guidance here. He goes to his attendance and says, I need a medium. Okay, don't know why he needs a woman, but I need a medium who's a woman, right? And so he sees his great need, right, his great felt need as, I need to defeat the Philistines, and the solution is, I need guidance. If God's not going to give me the guidance, I'm going to get a medium instead. Now, the sad reality is that this is a really hateful thing before God. All through the Old Testament, in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, God had said repeatedly Therefore, when his people went into the promised land, do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists. Anyone who turns to spiritists or mediums is prostituting themselves and will be cut off from the people. Again, in Deuteronomy, it's detestable to cast spells or to seek those who are mediums and spiritists and who consult the dead which is necromancy. Now, this is exactly what Saul was doing, right? Necromancy. Raising the dead in order to find out information from them. But the sad thing is that for Saul, he'd actually been personally warned by God at various times not to engage in this behavior. So, in the very last conversation that Saul had with the prophet Samuel, The Prophet Samuel has said to him, right, Does the law delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, to heed is better than the fat of rams, for rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. But not only that, in this passage today, right at the very start of chapter twenty eight. Said, now Samuel was dead, and all Israel mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. So Saul knew already that what he was doing was wrong. Because when Samuel was alive, he had actually banned the mediums and spiritists from operating in the land. So what he's doing now is actually going against his original decree of expelling the spiritists and mediums from the land to begin with. So here Saul is faced with this immediate desperate problem, and he snatches at these immediate desperate solutions, even though it is wrong, wrong, wrong in the eyes of God, and Saul knew it. Many years ago, someone told me of a Christian man who was a leader his child was really unwell, and so he prayed to God for his child's healing. Months went by, and the child's condition got worse. And so, this Christian leader had a neighbor, and the neighbor said, "You know, I'm going to the temple to pi pi, you know, to worship the God. Come with me. Come to the Chinese temple to pray. Maybe at the temple, your son will get better." And so this Christian leader decided to go to the temple to pai pie, pie and go to the temple to pray. Here was a Christian leader who was faced with an immediate desperate problem and he snatched a desperate solution even though he knew it was wrong in the eyes of God. There was a principal of a theological college who told me of a seminary student who was really desperate to pass. And so, in one of his essays, he plagiarized and cheated in the essay copied from his classmate so they brought him in kept denying that he was cheating kept denying he was cheating but in the end they showed the proof clear in his face and he said I'm a terrible sinner see in the same way Saul, the Christian leader the seminary student they're doing the same thing right they see this desperate problem the immediate problem and they want a solution even though they know it is wrong and that's what Saul was doing here So Saul makes his way to see the medium, but he has a problem. So here we see the map again. And so he's on the hill of Mount Gilboa. The people, or the Philistines, are down there in the valley in Shunem. And where is the medium? The medium is there at Endor, right? So in order to get to the medium, he has this short problem where he's actually got to sneak across and get behind the enemy lines in order to consult the medium. And that's what he does, right? So here we've got the top-down view. Saul puts on his fake mustache and sunglasses and makes his way to Endor, okay, up in the north, just behind enemy lines. What does he say to the woman? Then the woman asks, Whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? he asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up. Then Saul knew it was Samuel. He bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Now, this is a very rare occurrence of the Old Testament. Only four times the Old Testament do we see actually something, someone coming up or rising from the dead, right? In 1 Kings 17, Elijah raised the widow's son. 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha raised the son of the Shunammite woman. In 2 Kings 13, Elisha raised a dead man. And in all those other occasions, they were very positive things, right? Very positive things. But here is the only negative manifestation of someone coming out of the earth from the dead. And we, I'm not really sure why is it the medium, the woman cries out at the top of her voice, right, when she sees Samuel. Is it because usually she uses her demonic spirit or whatever to access the spirit of the dead and communicates through her, right? So actually I didn't realize, in my Bible study people were telling me all these scary stories about how mediums work. I never knew all the, the, the details, right, but Usually it's the mediums who like channel the Spirit and speak on behalf of the dead person. But here, we actually see the dead person rising from the dead. Now, some of you may have discussed in your Bible study why does God allow this to happen if it's so wrong? I think it's because God, in His power, gives permission and condescends for Saul to speak to Samuel because He wants Samuel to speak the truth into Saul's life. And what truth... Does God want Samuel to speak? So in verse 15, it says, Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? Now these two verses are like the sweet spot, the center point of the whole narrative, right? If you kind of still have physical Bibles, you should like highlight it and double underline it, like I have, right? See, for Saul, he thinks his big problem is the Philistines, and he thinks, you know, I'm in great distress, and because of this this great distress, I'm willing to make this transgression. But actually, what Samuel says is, your Philistine problem, which you think is so important, is actually a trivial problem. You've got a much bigger problem. And your bigger problem is that God has departed from you and has now become your enemy. You have no relationship with God. You've offended God. You're opposed to God. God is your enemy. Now, of all the situations that we can find ourselves in in this life, the worst situation is if God is your enemy. Now, the problem for Saul is that he thinks his big problem is the Philistines. But he doesn't recognize his big problem is his broken relationship with God and that God is his enemy. Now, if you think about it for a moment, in terms of the felt needs and the hidden needs, he thinks Philistines as the enemy is the main problem, and so his solution is guidance. I need guidance from somebody, Samuel, to solve my problem, Philistines as enemy. But Samuel tells him, actually, Philistine as enemy is trivial, right? It's a trivial problem. The law of God is your enemy. That is the big problem. And that is the problem that you need to solve. You see, if you think about it, what is the relationship between Saul and God? Actually, he's got no relationship between himself and God, isn't it? He? he puts no effort into his relationship between himself and God. If you think about it, the way that Saul treats God is like he treats God like ChatGBT, right? It's just that he lived uh, maybe 4,000 years too late, Right, too early. So if ChatGPT GBT were around uh, during Saul's time, right, he would consult ChatGPT GBT instead of Samuel and ask, Chet GBT, how do I defeat the Philistines? Because right? that is the problem that he sees that he has. But actually, the real problem is not how do I defeat the Philistines, The real problem is the law of God as the enemy. And that's the problem because that's where he is not putting in his effort. He should be trying his most effort to be reconciled with God, to get God back from being an enemy to his friend, humble himself before God, ask for God's mercy and forgiveness, repent of killing all the priests, repent of trying to kill David. But now it is too late. Samuel declares judgment on Saul. But not just on Saul, right? The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. And that is where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 31. The fulfillment of the words of Samuel spoken in judgment against Saul, but not just Saul, Saul's sons, and not just Saul's sons, but the army of Israel, but also Israel itself. And so that's what we see in Samuel 31, chapter 31. The Philistines fought against Israel, and the Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abimelech, and Melchishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and the archers overtook him. They wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it, so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. Now, if we look, coming back here to to the, uh, the map itself, we see that the battle actually takes place in the Jezreel, valley right and as we expect tanks will always defeat foot soldiers and so the chariots of the philistines defeat the israelites it's a terrible route right terrible chaos all the army of israel are defeated there's a slaughter uh, it's annihilation the remaining soldiers including the sons of saul then try to make their way up the hill So if you look at the side view, this is what it looks like today. This is the Mount Gilboa. And we imagine the chariots pushing foot soldiers of Israel all the way back to Mount Gilboa. The remaining soldiers, including the sons of Saul, make their way up, right? Jonathan, Abimelech, and Melchishua. And you can see how steep it is. Can you imagine running up that steep slope? You're completely exposed to the chariots. And so they start raining down arrows upon the people running up the hill. They probably get hit by the arrows, and the people, the Philistines, leave their chariots, and they start making their way up the hill and slaughtering all the remaining soldiers. So Jonathan, Abimadab, and Melchishua they die. Saul makes his way further up the hill, but he's also hit by arrows. In the end, he also dies. But that's not the end of the tragedy because in verse 7 of chapter 31, it says when the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled and the Philistines came and occupied them. So if you look back to the map again, the Jordan River is where Jabesh Gilead is. So all the people along that horizontal line basically left the towns And they just gave these towns over to the Philistines in order to live. And they effectively split the kingdom of Israel into two parts, the north and the south. So as we come to the end of chapter 31, it actually recalls an awful moment in Israel's history. It's a national tragedy, right? The country has been split in two. The army of Israel defeated. The sons of the king dead. king Saul himself dead. What lessons are there for us today, many thousands of years later? What are we supposed to learn from this? Well, I think that one of the main lessons we're meant to learn is the example of disobedience and the rebellion of Saul. He's kind of like this flesh and blood, vivid example of what happens if you persistently, consistently, and willfully go against God. See, to a certain degree, Saul, at the end of 1 Samuel 31, is a bookend to the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 2 in Hannah, right? So remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 2 in Hannah, Hannah was this barren, poor wife who had no children. But she put her faith in God, right? She prayed this prayer, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted up high, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord, there is no one beside you, there is no rock like our God. And so here at this bookend, we see Hannah, she's the one who actually is protected by God and watched over by God. She rejoices in the Lord. God lifts up her horn, delivers her, saves her. God is a rock. But in her prayer, there's a warning. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance for the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. See, the very polar opposite of Hannah is King Saul, right? He's rich, powerful, and he's proud and arrogant. He opposes God. He doesn't listen to God. And indeed, he's judged by God, right? Because at the end of the prayer of Hannah, she prays, he will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails, but those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The most high will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. See, that's exactly what Saul did. He was wicked. He opposed the Lord. And he was judged. See, what we're meant to see here is in a sense the warning of how 1 Samuel 2, the prayer of Hannah is actually fulfilled in the terrible, wicked behavior of King Saul. Wickedness, steadfast opposition, the failure to humble yourself, to be proud and arrogant, will ultimately lead to judgment and God being your enemy. It's really sad, really tragic, but it's not unexpected, and it's not shocking. In the coronation ceremony of King Saul, 1 Samuel 12, Samuel had already warned Saul and the nation. He said, If you fear the Lord and serve and obey Him and do not rebel against His commands, and if both you and the King who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against His commands, His hand will be against you as it was against your fathers. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. But I will teach you the way that is good and right, to be sure to fear the Lord, to serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things He has done for you, but if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. See, this is a warning to Saul and the nation, right? The most important thing for them is not the Philistines, but their relationship with God, to fear God, to obey Him, to serve Him, and not to rebel against Him. In the same way, as Christians today, we are warned as well that Jesus is not just our Saviour, but Jesus is our Lord and we need to obey the Gospel of the Lord Jesus and to humble ourselves before the Lord Jesus. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. So I wonder for ourselves today, do we acknowledge Jesus as our Lord? Do we humble ourselves before Lord Jesus? Or are we arrogant? Are we, in a sense, rebelling against God and the Word of God, even though we know that it's the wrong thing to do? So I remember someone reminded me of this book that I read a while ago called The Heart is the Target. And that book is a really interesting diagram. And... Um, it's like a spiritual conditions grid, okay? And so in this spiritual conditions grid, you're meant to examine yourself and challenge yourself and and, and put the mirror to ourselves and ask ourselves, how is my relationship with Jesus Christ? And for some people, it's not going well, and they don't know it. And that's the first grid, right? They're arrogant and they're complacent. Maybe they're like Saul, in a sense, They think that they are right with God, but they are not really acknowledging Jesus as Lord. I've spoken to a few of these Christians in the past. They'll tell me things like, oh, my relationship with God is okay. But when you look at their life, there's no life change, there's no humility, there's no repentance, there's no taking of sin seriously. There's no delighting in the holiness of God. There's no, in a sense, desire to take God's word seriously. There's no sanctification. And they're alive, and that's a really dangerous place to be. You're not going well. Jesus is not your Lord, and you don't know it. You're arrogant, and you're complacent. For some people, they're not going well spiritually, and they know it. They're backsliding, but they're compromising and making excuses. They are a bit like Saul, right? When Saul, Samuel asked him, "Why are you doing this thing?" and he says, "I'm in great distress." You know, because I'm in great distress, I have this great immediate present need. Well, God will excuse me. So I'm sure many of you know of uh, Tan Chuan Jin, right? Okay. And uh, I'm very sad for, about Tan Chuan Jin because I actually am really good friends with one of his relatives. And uh, this relative is really proud of him. And I've read articles about him in... Christian publications like so and Light. And it makes me really sad because I realized that he must have been writing some of these articles while at the same time knowingly committing adultery. Now sometimes I've met adulterers before and they tell me, you know, this feels so good, how can it be wrong before God's eyes, right? You don't understand how much we love each other. Or something like, don't I deserve to be happy once in my life? But these are all compromises and excuses, right? They know that Jesus is Lord, and they know they're not obeying, but they are making excuses. Brothers and sisters, are we like that? Are we like Saul, but, you know, in relation to our relationship with Jesus Christ? Are we arrogant and complacent before Jesus, making excuses and compromising, and not really following Jesus as Lord? Because if that's you, then the great danger is actually Jesus is not your savior, but he's your enemy, and God is your enemy. And that's the worst thing in the world to have, right? So I hope for all of us, we won't focus our energies on the immediate felt needs, but the eternal hidden needs, right? To really pay attention to what really matters in eternity. To really live out that Jesus is Lord in your life. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear fathers, we Come before you. Help us to take to heart the lesson of Saul. That in many ways he was the polar opposite of what Hannah prayed for 1 Samuel 2. He didn't delight in you. He didn't put his faith in you. He, you were not his rock. Indeed, he was the very opposite of what Hannah prayed. He was proud. He was arrogant. He made excuses for his sin. He opposed your will. In the end, you were his enemy and you judged him. Dear Father, we pray for ourselves that we are not like that. That we would not choose to rebel against you, to oppose you, in order to to do what immediately feels good for us today. But to see that Jesus must be Lord over everything, and that is our most important of needs. Dear Father, we pray that you may help us to examine ourselves, to humble ourselves before you, and to seek to always obey your word, to desire to be sanctified before you. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, uh,
1: we'll now come to a time of reflection and discussions. So I'll flash the... Discussion questions up on the screen, and then uh, we can take a few minutes to discuss uh, the questions. So, first uh, question is Jesus really Lord in my life? And second, what is my spiritual condition before the Lord Jesus? Are there things that I have neglected for the sake of immediate things which seem important now but are trivial in the light of eternity? Yeah. So, yeah, you can turn to your closest neighbor we will take a few minutes. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us
0: online at bcpc.sg